Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to um, 1 John, 1 John in the New Testament. The Church Bibles, it's page 864. In just a moment or two, I'm going to begin reading from chapter 5. 1 John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. Amen. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 13, 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that does lead to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. This is our verse. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, Keep yourself from idols. Let's pray together, please. Father, would you please bless the reading of your word and please grant to us understanding. I um, am incomplete without you and therefore I need you to take pity on me as a speaker and have mercy on everyone who's listening now. Our concern is your glory and our encouragement and perhaps for some, belief. We can't do that. Therefore, we call on you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, yesterday, I was at a place where I just happened to see that Google uh, put on their, uh, one of their websites the, the most Googled movies in the United States, state by state. So I live in Minnesota. I was curious. The most Googled movie is White Christmas the, from a long time ago. So I used to live in Texas, and I wondered what they wanted. <laughs> so Texas, or Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Country Christmas Album, which is actually a movie. It's not an album. And the reason why that struck me is because I knew the first line of my sermon was, during the Christmas season, there's some really fantastic movies. I've counted at least four that I really want to see um, over the Christmas season. And I think one of the most interesting genres of movies is that of betrayal. Betrayal is always better when it's in the movies and not in real life. So, so think of Braveheart. Remember that sad scene where William Wallace, Mel Gibson, uh, he loses heart. He's been betrayed by the, uh, Robert the Bruce, a Scottish noble. And so they're in the Battle of Falkirk and... Um, Mel Gibson does what Mel Gibson does best and just 
you know, beat him down, and, and then he removes the helmet of Robert Bruce, and you watch, and it's just so sad as this William Wallace just loses his legs because he sees the man who promised him loyalty as the one who wants him dead. So his legs give way, he slumps to the ground, face just plunges into his hand because he was betrayed. One late night, a long, long time ago, I was rocking my daughter Lindsay to sleep, and I was watching a movie, Love Actually, so please don't judge me. <laughs> my daughter can be very convincing, even at three and a half years old. But anyway, there's a telling movie, a mo- moment in the movie where Emma Watson, she's expressing what it feels like to be betrayed by her husband. This is what she says. Tell me, if you were in my position, what, what would you do? Imagine your husband bought a gold necklace and come Christmas gave it to somebody else. Would you hang around to find out if it was just a necklace or if it was an affair and a necklace or worse, a necklace and love? And so her husband replies, oh, honey, I've been such a fool. And then she replies, and this is one of the things that's so dreadful about being betrayed, but you've made a fool out of me too. You've made the life I live foolish. And so betrayal can be an interesting thing to watch on the big screen, but it's terrible to experience in real life. If you've ever been betrayed, you might have relived whatever you were betrayed by or who the moment the word came off of my tongue. Jesus Christ himself knew betrayal. Psalm 41 verse 9 predicted Judas Iscariot, and it says, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. That would be very, very hard to endure. And perhaps when you hear that word betrayal, you might think of a friend, a colleague at work, a best friend from school, a lover, even yourself. And you remember it all. Maybe even getting a little bit angry right now, stomach turning, minds racing. Betrayal. Jesus knew it. The Bible is replete with it. History is replete with it. And I imagine many of you in this room have experienced it. And if you think about it, even the Christmas story, there's betrayal there. An evil king lies to the magi. And believe it or not, betrayal is the, betrayal is the context here. 1 John 2.19, this is the setting. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So scholars tell us that the context is such that there were new Christians to whom John is writing to, and they've had their faith shaken by some of the more prominent members of the fellowship who probably were part of the leadership who began to drift away from the truth, and specifically the false teaching had begun that they denied the very heart of Christmas. They were denying the incarnation. And so incarnation comes from the Latin word meaning taking on flesh. And the foundation of the Christmas message is God appeared and he took on flesh and miraculously became a baby. That's what happened. Jesus left heaven, became a man, fully God, fully man. That was at the heart of what was being denied by some in the church. December 21st, by the way, New York Times uh, op-ed piece. You should read this. It's entitled, Professor, Was Jesus Really Born to a Virgin? And he was asking a biblical scholar, and part of the scholar's answer was, can a God who created the entire universe make a woman pregnant? Sure. It's child's play for God. Jesus, fully God, fully God, with us, without sin, the perfect life. Fully man, that he, he wore our flesh to be our representative at the cross, paying for his 
for our sins by his death. And every chapter in this letter, the church is told Jesus is God in flesh. Jesus is your only mediator. Jesus is God's only answer between the problem of sin and you and him. For example, 1 John 1, 2, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. Christ appeared. We've seen it. Testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Again, 1 John 3, 5, we know that he appeared that he might take away our sins. Implication, because we're sinners. 1 John 2, 1, we should not sin, but if we do, Jesus is our defense. However, the false teachers were saying, well, things are a bit more complicated than we thought they were in the beginning. And so as they considered the incarnation, they said, 1 John 2, 3, and 4, well, we know God, but we don't really have to obey God. Well, why? Well, 1 John 1, 8, because we've actually defeated sin in our lives. That's what they were saying. We've defeated sin. Now, it's one thing to not care about sin. I mean, that's understandable. But to say that you've defeated sin... And because they were saying that they had defeated sin, they were also saying that they really didn't need the birth of Christ and the death of Christ as any consequence in their life. Nor did they need the the love of the fellowship of the believers. That's John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we don't love them, we remain in death. And so some of the people who had left because of the incarnation, because of what they were thinking about Jesus, decided we don't even need to love the fellowship at all. So, so to drift away, now pay attention to this please, to drift away from the gospel message is a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live, to speak and to think and to worship like you never need forgiveness. It's terrible. Now, we can all agree to be betrayed by someone is crippling. But add to that someone who was in the fellowship because they changed their mind about Jesus. And you may have been betrayed like this, a wrong teaching in the church or some kind of immoral activity in the church. I mean, Southern Baptists and Roman Catholics have spent a year reading headlines about abusive pastors and about uh, abusive priests, corruption in the Vatican, uh, corruption in the Southern Baptist leadership. So that means thousands of deeply betrayed individuals who had their sacred trust broken because of evil people. However, the question here is, what do you do in the face of betrayal? What do you do when someone who may have read your Bible study begins to deny the incarnation, uh, deny the need of a sent Jesus Christ, saying, you know what, sin isn't really big a deal, relax, and by the way, Jesus isn't God. What would you do? Well, don't do this, because in Braveheart, William Wallace actually killed those who betrayed him. (laughs) No. (laughs) In Love Actually, Emma Watson cries on the shoulder of her brother, embracing the one man that she can actually trust. However, what John does in 1 John is not to get physical with those who left. He gets theological with those who stayed. So what he does is he throws himself into gospel truth and through his pen, he writes this letter in order that Christians are absolutely sure of their faith and completely certain of their standing in the eyes of God. Now get that, absolutely sure of their faith and they are completely certain of their standing in the eyes of God. No matter what comes, no matter what is taken, no matter what is gained, no matter what. So he writes, verse 20, We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 
Now, can you hear the certainty of John's pen here? In Christ's certainty, gospel certainty. And there are two words which are like a deeply dug home foundation which can withstand a, a hurricane force wind. They are the words true and the words no. Verse 20. And so John is saying, you know these things are true. Okay, how much do you know it? Well, the word that John uses in the Greek for know has the meaning of intimate and experienced knowledge. And that word was used as a euphemism for the wedding night love between a husband and wife. So that is deep, rich, intimate, personal knowledge of Christ, of his grace, of his beauty, of his sufficiency, of the cross, of his promises, his resurrection, his love, and his promised return. And you know, John actually does this in another letter that he wrote. Actually, it was a gospel, so that his readers will know that what he was writing was true. It's John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Just let me read it to you. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may, and here it is again, you may have life in his name. So John's aim in writing his gospel, he wants believers in Jesus Christ. And did you hear, I mean, maybe not, I'm going to help you, but there's like five phrases that John says. One, John writes, Jesus did many things. So you're going to build your life on fact, not, not fiction. Faith is based on fact. The things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did, which included what? Some incredible miracles. Be still. The sea is calm. Little girl, get up. She gets up. It's lunchtime, 5,000 plus fed. Father, forgive them. And as crucifiers, just think of it, immediately forgiven. Jesus is God's son who has come into God's world in a moment in time. Jesus did these things and they were too seen by eyewitnesses. And not only were they seen by eyewitnesses, they were three written down. Again, I apologize, but I read another terrific article. This was two weeks ago. National Geographic, the title, Inside the Cloak and Dagger Search for Sacred Texts. And when I read that, all it did was reaffirm to me the certainty and the accuracy of the things written down in the Bible. So Jesus, one, did and said many things. Two, which were actually seen by witnesses. Three, written down in order that four, you may believe that Jesus is actually the Son of God. And by five, by believing, you may have life in Christ. Life in his name. So I want you to see where John is not afraid to take us to our minds. And he says, think this story out. These are deeply dug, unmovable, foundational truths. These are indestructible truths. Jesus did things. He said things. They were seen. They were written down that you may believe and you may have life in Christ. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. If all hell breaks loose in your life, where you are betrayed, you are hurt, you suffer loss, things are taken from you, people taken from you, and life is hurting you, I hope that you don't look for a feeling first to make everything okay. Many of us, and this is true, but it's sad, many of us have been part of a Christmas where old friends have been taken away. Familiar customs, they're no longer familiar. And long-held Christmas hopes and dreams have kind of just given way to time. That's reality. 
None of us here can pray our way past that. Stop that. However, basic Christian truth, there's a new world coming. And that world will never know loss and never know pain and never know betrayal. But for now, we live in the old world. And in the old world, we need assurances. And John writes that God wants us to have assurances. So the believers that John writes to in this epistle, they've been torpedoed by false teachers and false doctrine. And John says, you know, we're going to go back to the basics. All over this letter, in order that. You see it there in verse 13, chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe because I want you to know. I want you to be clear. I want you to be confident. You have eternal life. You have assurances. So just to summarize, John's gospel is written that you may have eternal life. John's letter is written that you may know that you have eternal life. It's good, isn't it, that God wants you to know? God doesn't want you to be in the dark. Christians, we are people of the light. We're not to be in the dark. John says Christian people are not to be in perpetual doubt, perpetual uh, uncertainty, perpetual insecurity, wondering if their faith will bear the weight of this world, will bear the weight of their present life, or even past death in that eternal future. No, God says, I have prepared an eternal banquet for you, and I want you to live like that now in those assurances. I have prepared a future for you, the new creation, and I want you to frame your life in that truth right now. I proved it by sending my son. This is not really about you right now. My son died for your sins. He was buried. He was risen from the dead to show that eternity is a reality. It's not some fantasy. I want you to know that for sure right now, to have it absolutely Rock solid in your mind. I was talking to someone a week ago, and, and they told me, like, every time they came together in, the, in some of their groups, it's like, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? Well, I understand that. But how about some assurance, 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 assurance? One of the most powerful religious figures in the 16th and 17th century, who wasn't even a believer, he was a religious figure, wasn't a believer, Robert Bellarmine. This is what he said. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance with God. Can you believe it? Did the guy read his Bible? Assurance with God as a heresy, a false doctrine? He said, this is what he wrote, and I hate even reading the quote, but it's part of the sermon. <laughs> well, he'll get to the part. Well, I'll <laughs> Assurance is dangerous for the common Christian. And here it goes. And only those who have reached a certain level of holiness could receive some special personal revelation of God's assurance. Doesn't it make you mad? And at the same time, doesn't it want to make you cry? No, assurance is one of the main and plain things God gives all of his children. He's given it so that we might, yes, frame our life in it, but also enjoy it. And this is so important because if we do know this, if we know our assurance and built our life on that, then everything in our living as a child of God takes on new significance. You see, if you're not confident in your relationship with God right now, then your life will be centered on you. It's, it's a religious narcissism. If you like a religious selfishness rooted in what you're doing or what you're not doing. So it's like one continuous loop of, am I doing enough? Am I reading the Bible enough? Am I praying enough? Am I serving enough? 
and you toss the doctrine of justification right out the door and it just lands on the floor. And as people do this, if they are not confident, assured in their relationship with God, their effectiveness really diminishes. Their stability begins to wane. But if you know the biblical witnesses, you have divine energy to serve, to invite, to live, and enjoy Christ on the basis of what He has done, not what you're doing or not doing. Otherwise, you can spend your whole life worrying about your own soul. So a whole life torpedoed by our own self-interpretations. It's terrible. It's like a grounded plane which can fly, but never actually takes off to fly. Now, I know that there are people who live who, who really don't think about the state of their soul. There are people with very large egos whose answer to this question are secured only by the things of time and the things they're doing or not doing. And they have so much confidence in the things that they're doing that that's where everything lies. It doesn't matter. John still says, I want you to know, Christian, I want you to be secure, to have your faith well-ordered, assurances you can have so that you radiate in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's beautiful, isn't it? Radiating in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think of the Apostle Paul just for a moment. He's, he's about to be put to death. This is a, to Timothy. He is about to be executed. He's in prison. But what does he write? Does he say, oh God, what am I going to do? <laughs> no, this is what he says. I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I know, I'm convinced, I've entrusted. So what does Paul do and how does Paul live in the midst of the shadow of death? Answer, he keeps doing what he's been doing since his conversion. When he began to know God. He writes what he knows, epistles. He keeps serving the only one he knows, Jesus. He gets the message out, the good news. Why? He's stable. He's secure. He knows because he's in Christ. Jesus Christ, remember this, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Christians, order those truths in your mind. Plenty of evidence to do that. And then with that in place, resolve to look upwards and outwards. In other words, forget about yourself because it's so Christian. Isn't that beautiful? Forget about yourself. It is so Christian. Now, as I say this, you may be thinking that if a person has that kind of assurance and that kind of confidence in life, if I have that truth in my life, you know, maybe my neighbors, my colleagues, my friends, family, well, they're going to tell me I'm arrogant. Maybe a bit bigoted. Because that's what people say. I mean, how can you know? Who do you think you are? What's going on here? No. Loved ones, we champion a reasonable faith that gives a complete worldview that takes into account the whole world. Science, history, philosophy, mathematics, logic, Christianity is like, bring it on. We can deal in every one of those realms happily so that you can know. So I want you to think this out. To know about God through God's Son, Jesus Christ, means that we are finally free to forget about ourselves and serve others with the love of Christ, with the message of Christ, and with His grace. And that doesn't make us arrogant or bigoted, but it does make us self, self-forgetful. And that's what the world needs and willing to serve. 
And that's what the world needs. Why can we do that? Because, well, I've got everything sorted out eternally. Right? Yes. I can serve others, sort it out, not on the basis of me and what I've done, but sort it out on the basis of Jesus and what Jesus has done. So this is like sorted out, not because, you know, you get all your ducks in a row, because sometimes you hear that, you know, as soon as I get everything straight, then I'm going to go do stuff for Jesus. So I'm going to get my family duck in a row. I'm going to get my finance, finance duck in a row. I'm going to get my fitness duck in a row. I'm going to get all my fulfillment duck in a row. Did I forget any ducks? Any more quacks? See, that's what's so terrible that, about that. That whole family, marriage, fitness, future, fulfillment argument. That says, you know, if you get those things right, then then you'll have the stability is hogwash. It's a lie. There's a hymn that says, My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who bore my pain, who, who plumbed the depth of my disgrace and gave me life again, who crushed my curse of sinfulness and clothed me in his light and wrote his law of righteousness with power upon my heart. Loved ones, what a terrible way to live if we frame our life so that we have no one to serve and we reduce the fact that our sins are forgiven to somewhere in our Christian corner. There's a good example of someone who did things right. His name was Wilbur Wilberforce. Spent 46 years of his life battling slave trade which, by the way, was declared illegal worldwide three days before he died. So how did it happen? Well, listen to his words. There are peculiar doctrines which are the foundation of my Christianity. I know they are true. I retell them to myself often, for those truths are about him. And I know him. And the slave trade ended not because Wilberforce was arrogant and bigoted, No, it ended because he believed Christ. He knew Christ's truth. He gave himself to that truth. So a life of service and conflict lived for the sake of millions was warranted. Think about that. Millions of people he would never personally know. 46 years of his life he gave for them. Verse 20, do you see it there? That we know these truths. That we know these truths is good for you, but it's also good for the world. That's Christianity proper. Thank God for men and women and young people like Wilberforce. Now verse 14. This confidence we have in living is also a confidence in prayer, isn't it? Verse 14, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then he double downs again. Uh, verse 15 as well. You see, we can be confident that we are heard by our Father in heaven. Why? 1 John 1, 9. Because the blood of Jesus, his Son, purifies us from all sins. That's it? Yeah, that's it. And we know God so we can ask things in keeping with His will, verse 14, verse 15, but our happiest moment in our prayers is probably when we say, Your will be done. That's our happiest moment. Your will be done. So our access to God's throne is wide, it's open, it's direct, and we can know that. We can know that, but the Buddhists can't know that until their sins are paid for. The Muslim can't know that until their sins are paid for. The Hindu can't know that until their sins are paid for. Americans can't know that until their sins are paid for. But the Christian can know that. They can know that they are heard. Why? 
Well, you've had one of those weeks where you're going to be able to be heard. No. You can be heard because Christ has forgiven you of your sins. You can be heard not because you stopped sinning, but because Christ has forgiven you of your sins. I saw a video clip a few weeks ago. It was terrible. It was the prime minister of Thailand approaching the king of Thailand, crawling on the floor. We don't have to do that when we approach God. Verse 19, we can worship, but we don't have to crawl. Verse 19, we know that we are children of God. We don't have to crawl because we have a heavenly father. I've been adopted into his family. I am forgiven. I know him. So it calls for a question, right? Where is your identity this morning? Where is your identity? Sins are paid for. That's where your identity is or only the things of time. And if the things of time are going well, then this is swell. But if there's not, well, there's something I need to do. (laughs) That's old and it makes me tired. Do you know the Son of God has come? So that you know you are accepted and you know you are heard and you know you're part of the family and you know that you have the best seat in the house because every seat is the best seat in the house. All because of what Jesus has done. What a grace to have your identity there. And let's say you arrived this morning and yeah, you suffered a terrible betrayal. Please, loved ones, redirect your confidence here, your thinking here, your life here, your heart here, your soul here in this knowledge. So simple. Christ has come. And you know him. We trust Jesus. He will never betray you. People, sure. But not Jesus. We know these truths about him and he leads us. Rock solid, steel bolted forgiveness and peace and care and assurance and a life in him. Okay, so final point. What is our confidence in knowing this truth? Well, look again at verse 20. Here it is. God has given us understanding. God has given us this understanding, which means we needed God to give us understanding that His Son has come and all that it means. We needed God to open our eyes because by nature, on our own, we can't recognize Christ has come and see this truth. By nature, we know this. Our hearts are dark. They're dead. They're hard. And yeah, that offends human pride because human pride says, you know, you just said it before me. I can know. I can know I'm my own. But think with me, please. The Christmas story... God had to give specific revelation. He had to interject things so that a few in the beginning could know who he was. So our times will tell us it's the power of knowledge, power of logic, human opinion. That will tell us what we need to know. However, at the heart of that human creed, which says when we see the truth, we will recognize it, that is directly opposed to the heart of the gospel, which tells us when people saw the truth, they tried to destroy it. You get that? When Jesus was there, he came into the world. He came into his own, but his own did not receive him. Right in front of their eyes. And they want him dead. That is the nature of the human heart. And that is why the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we can now know. And Christ promised, John says this in his Gospels, that he would be leaving something behind when he left, someone behind. His Spirit. And He has. And it is through the work of the Holy Spirit that our eyes are finally open to the truth about Christmas, the truth about Christ, the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, and the truth about what is now and in what is to come. So it's God's Spirit who does this. Yeah, we have to apply our minds, absolutely. 
But we need the Spirit. We cry out for the Spirit. Because John is saying in verse 20, only the Son of God has come, Christmas, that the Spirit can now be given and our minds renewed and our eyes open. And loved ones, that is the massive consequence of Christmas. That we actually now, because of Christmas and because of the Holy Spirit, we know, we have understanding. And it means that the Christians have the right and the ability to frame their world. Seeing everything as God sees it. So that we could fashion a life to do everything as God would do it in our own individual context. I know who I am. I know who God is. I know my place in this world. I know what the future holds. I am stable. All because of Christ. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I know who I am. I know who God is. I know what my place in this world is. And I know what the future holds. I am stable. All because of Christ. Loved ones, the Bible insists on that kind of mindset, the mind of Christ. That is the great privilege of being an ordinary child of God. The world is the world. It's fine, but it's fallen. It's broken. But because I know God, I don't give up on the world. I'm not afraid of the world. Because of this knowledge of God and the person of His Son, I keep at it. I keep at the worship of Jesus, the work of Jesus, knowing that history is on Jesus' side. That is the grace-fueled life of the Holy Spirit that God gives His ordinary children. Christian, you have that this morning. We've been given understanding by the Spirit that we may intimately know Christ, know Him who is true. You see, that's why in, in the second chapter of 1 John, when he writes, don't love the world, he's not saying, don't have fun. He's just saying, look, don't build a life on cravings and lust like you have no Father in heaven who wants you to have what you need. Don't build a life that way. I wonder if any of you know the name Malcolm Muggeridge. He lived in the 20th century. He was a famous journalist. He was converted at 51 years old. This is what he said. What is so wonderful about being a Christian is the great joy of understanding. I now know what is going on. Now think about that. Decades of reporting the world. Finally, he understands how the world works. He still studied. He still worked. But now he knows. He knew truth. Because he knew Christ. Intimate knowledge of Jesus. Listen to John chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's our great boast. That's it. I know God in Christ. J.I. Packer wrote a book a long time ago, Knowing God, and in it he quotes from a friend, Knowing God has been the greatest privilege of my life. Paul, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Cultural Christianity, well, I'm gaining a lot of stuff from Christ. Biblical Christianity, I'm losing a lot of stuff. That's fine because I know Christ. And you see, that is what Christmas is for, that we may know God through Christ. 
And from that relationship, stability of mind, stability of life, work of service, not, not narcissistic, selfish, turned-in service. No, we're looking out for others because we've been changed by God, because we know God. And our great security is knowing God in His good news through His Son. That is our great boast. That is our great security. And if he's not, then look at verse 21. It tells us that idols have got in. So we may need to repent. Let's pray. Father, to whatever degree you deem necessary, open our eyes, awaken our hearts, touch our lips that we may really know you through your Son, Jesus Christ, and that we may really know your rest, real rest in you. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen.